0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, at the start of one of the most closely fought British general election campaigns in recent memory, we'll hear from London about the state of the parties and the issues that will shape the campaign. But we begin in Yemen, where Saudi Arabia, backed by ten other countries, has launched airstrikes on targets in the capital Sana'a, controlled by rebels from the Shia Houthis. The Houthis, who are backed by Iran and by Yemen's former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, are seeking to oust the country's new president, Abd-Rabu Hadi, who has the support of Saudi Arabia. The Saudi action marks a major escalation in its proxy conflict in Yemen with Iran, a rival regional power. To discuss the latest developments, I'm joined from New York by journalist Peter Salisbury, who has reported extensively from Yemen and from Nicosia by the Irish Times Middle East analyst Michael Jansen. Peter, can you first of all just describe briefly the origins of this conflict?
1: Sure. So what we're looking at is, is the, the culmination of a series of different factors in, in Yemen, including this, this rebel group, the Houthis, rising to power, a split within the regime that kept Yemen together for decades, Um, And a political process that has has gone off the rails along with Saudi Arabia's rivalry with Iran within the region, which is really reaching unprecedented proportions, uh, as is evidenced by this this Saudi campaign in Yemen. So in terms of the Houthis themselves, their religious revivalist movement for the the Zaydi form of Shia Islam that is largely unique to the north of Yemen Um, And from 2004 to 2010, they fought an insurgency against the the regime in Sana'a, then led by uh, President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had tried to put them down largely because of their anti-foreign intervention rhetoric and their criticism of his government as corrupt. Um, And they morphed, really, from this religious revivalist movement with some tribal ties into um, a really efficient guerrilla Militia um, over the course of, of those six years. Now, in 2011, obviously we had the Arab Spring uprisings across the region. In in Yemen, what happened was that the the protests in the country sparked a split within the Saleh regime. Saleh had uh, really been propped up by an alliance between his his close allies who control much of the military, and between a, a group of uh, Sunni Islamists who were. Uh, tribal leaders, military leaders, and um, political and religious leaders. Um, Now, that that alliance really split during the the uprisings in in 2011 and, in fact, ended up with fighting on the streets between the the two different regime factions. That caused a power vacuum in Yemen, which allowed the Houthis to finally take over the northern Yemeni province of of Sada, which has always been their, their stronghold. It also allowed other groups like uh, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, to expand their presence and their influence in the region. And what we've seen since 2012 is a political transition process, which was initiated by Saleh agreeing to step down from from power, um, but being given immunity and allowed to stay in the country. And what's happened really is, is that Saleh's done his best to undermine the process and has been trying to work out a way... First to get rid of his rivals, this this Islamist faction from within his regime, um, which he's he's had considerable success in doing, and then getting rid of his replacement as president, Abdul Rahman Al-Hadi, who you mentioned earlier. Um, in order to do that, what he's done is he's got his tribal allies and he's got the military units still allied with him, who by this point are realistically the majority of what's left of Yemen's military to work alongside the Houthis um, in their campaign to seize control, first of the capital of Sana'a and most recently of the western seaboard of Yemen and now now the south. Um, In doing so, um, they've pushed Abu Dhabi al-Mansu Hadi first out of Sana'a. He fled to Aden and then he said that he was going to launch his own campaign to oust the Houthis backed by Saudi Arabia. Um, And the Saudis got really involved when the Houthis made fairly short work of getting rid of the forces fighting alongside uh, President Hadi and moved in on Aden, this, this southern port city, which he, he thought that he could use as a base. Now, the Saudis see the Houthis as being an Iranian proxy in their own backyards. Um, Yemen shares a 1,100-mile border. With Saudi Arabia. It bisects uh, an important choke point for oil and trade, known as the Bab al Mandeb Strait, through which a lot of Saudi oil and a lot of Egyptian trade flowing in and out of the Nile the, the Nile part is. Um, and the Saudis were very worried that the Iranian sphere of influence was, was going to expand into Yemen. Um, it's there's an open question as to whether or not this campaign would have happened if uh, Abdullah, the previous Uh, Saudi Arabian king had not died in January and been replaced by his half-brother, Salman. But what we've seen is a far more aggressive stance from Salman and from his son, Mohammed, uh, who has been appointed as Minister of Defence. And they're the guys who really have been the motivating factor behind this military campaign in Yemen. Now, they say that their aim is to restore Abdu'l-Rabba Mansur to their the presidency, they're calling him the legitimate president and indeed the legitimate government of, of Yemen. Um, but at one and the same time, um, he, the, the, the Saudis are also becoming more and more vocal about the fact that they see the Houthis as an Iranian-backed militia, um, an Iranian Hezbollah militia the and they, they seem to be intent more than anything on destroying them and getting rid of Saleh who uh, has been supporting them and has really sort of allowed for their, their rise over the past few years and that really takes us to where we are.
0: Peter, uh, Peter, you mentioned this uh, this proxy conflict between Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia, as perceived uh, certainly by the Saudis. But there's also, of course, another element Mm -hmm. insofar as the United States has been allied with uh, President Hadi in pursuit of. the uh, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and also with an, uh, uh, an affiliate of ISIS. And uh, the U.S. campaign, uh, which involved drone strikes and targeted attacks, uh, it ha- has this been disrupted now by what's been going on and by uh, the fact that Hadi is uh, in retreat? Um, the
1: Americans have said that their uh, counterterrorism efforts will not be impacted by the current campaign. But realistically, what we're seeing at the moment, as I said, what's left of the military in Yemen is units that were and are affiliated to former President Saleh. And these are the the units that were given $500 million of uh, American funding between 2007 and 2011. Um, So they were the the forces that were mainly engaged in fighting against al-Qaeda. These are the units that the Saudis are currently targeting with their their airstrikes. Um, At one and the same time, the Houthis were, in fact, fighting al-Qaeda and are fighting al-Qaeda in the country. And we end up in this very odd situation where the Saudis want to get rid of what they see as an Iranian proxy. The Americans have said that they will back that campaign. But at one and the same time, they're removing the two military forces in the country that are willing and able to take the fight to to Al-Qaeda, and they're creating real space for Al-Qaeda to operate in. Um, And when Hadi was in Aden uh, last week, he was talking about building a 20,000-man militia, and there were a number of rumors at that point that uh, through omission or commission, a number of the people who he was recruiting were, in fact, uh, extremist Islamists. So there was a chance that Saudi Arabia would be going into Yemen and effectively arming and paying for uh, certainly people who would be affiliated to al-Qaeda to fight against the Houthis. So once again, it's one of these very complex Middle Eastern issues where this logic of the enemy of my enemy tends to run up against the the wall after a fairly short period of time.
0: Michael Janssen, this uh, escalation uh, of uh, the conflict uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, how serious is the escalation, and why is it escalating at this time?
2: Well, it is very serious, and it is escalating at this time for two reasons. Um, The change in leadership in Saudi Arabia. Uh, is one major reason. The, the present king is more uh, aggressive than his, um, his his half-brother, Abdullah, who died recently. And also, the um, defense minister, Mohammed is a young man. Uh, they joke in Saudi Arabia that they give his biography saying he is 35 or 33, when, in fact, he is 26. And he wants to make his mark on the situation. Uh, So that is one reason. The other reason is that the Saudis are absolutely paranoid about Iran. They fear that Iran is winning over the region. Um, They see Iran's power in Iraq, and they see that Iran is backing the Syrian government. And also they see that Hezbollah, which is an ally of Iran, is a strong power in Lebanon. And uh, as far as the Saudis were concerned, the rise of the Houthis was the last straw. And um, at, the, at the moment, it, it, they have also shown their muscle in northern Syria. Uh, they have backed along with Turkey the takeover of the city of Idlib in the northern northwestern province of Idlib, uh, which had been under government control throughout the unrest in Syria. And this was in a major uh, development. It included some groups which were backed by the Saudis and the Turks, as well as al-Qaeda's affiliate uh, uh, Jabhat al-Nusra. The, the Saudis want to At least reduce Iranian influence in these countries uh, because they see that Iran is, uh, or they fear that Iran is trying to export its revolution uh, to the Middle East, although the fact that Iran is a Shia country, and only 15% of the people who live in the Middle Eastern region are Shias. So it doesn't seem to dawn on them.
0: Uh, Michael, uh, the, the Saudis, of course, are not alone. They have this uh, coalition uh, uh, surrounding them, which not only includes countries like Jordan and Egypt, but also more uh, further, countries further afield like Morocco and indeed Pakistan. What's the significance of this alliance against Iran?
2: Well, I mean, Pakistan is a long-term Saudi ally and it has received a great deal of money from the Saudis. Uh, Morocco is a monarchy and is also nervous about the revolutions in the region. Uh, Egypt, of course, has received billions in Saudi aid, so it has to go along with this strategy, has no choice. And it also is very nervous about the possibility of the Babel Mandab Strait being closed uh, to both oil and to trade. Um, The the real problem is that this coalition is, uh, as it were, broken back from the beginning, because some countries will not participate with any enthusiasm, uh, which is true also of the U.S. coalition uh, fighting. Uh, the Islamic State in Iraq, some countries participate more enthusiastically than others.
0: Peter Salisbury, can I go back to you on this one? Because uh, we saw the uh, the Saudis acted very decisively, for example, in Bahrain when they went in support of the uh, of the uh, regime there some years ago. Uh, but the action here in Yemen, obviously it's a much more complicated, a much more difficult uh, place to operate, a more a more difficult theater of operations. What chance? does Saudi Arabia really have of uh, installing a stable uh, government loyal to them in that country? That's
1: that's a a very good question. I mean, the first thing to say there is that in Bahrain in 2011, we're talking about a tiny island with a population of about 1.3 million people where you have a regime, which is absolutely amenable to the Saudi's interests and where the population who the Saudis were hoping to put down were not heavily armed and did not really plan on, on taking part in an armed conflict. In Yemen, you've got a country of 26 million people. Um, it's a highly diverse country. There are multiple actors with, with multiple interests, and the the biggest problem they face realistically is in legitimizing their invasion. They've been saying that what they're doing is in order to restore the legitimate government to Hadi. So they're saying one man is is the government, is the legitimate government. But their bombing campaign has outraged people in the northwest of the country, um, which is where the capital is. So if Hadi were to return as president, his legitimacy would be largely based on the fact that Saudi Arabia says he's president and on their military presence in the country. So if they are willing to establish an occupation of this very complex, very violent country, which in the 1960s, the Egyptians lost 26,000 soldiers trying to help take over. Um, If they're willing to launch an occupation there, then maybe they can install a government they feel is amenable to their interests. But at one and the same time, there's a huge possibility that this will become Saudi Arabia's Iraq, where they go into a country... Um, first as a, a, an offensive force, but then become a force of occupation. And they are tasked with rebuilding the country from the ground up while facing multiple insurgencies. And that sounds like a nightmare scenario for a country which hasn't really been involved in directly in launching ground operations um, at any point realistically in its, its
0: recent history. Michael Jansen, finally, is that uh, what we're looking at, a nightmare scenario for Saudi Arabia?
2: I think so. Uh, one of the points uh, that uh, Peter made is very valid: that uh, Yemen is uh, extremely difficult to deal with because of all the different factions. But also, the geography is uh, is difficult because of the mountains in Yemen, which afford rebel groups protection.
0: Didn't uh, one President one... Saleh describe uh, governing uh, Yemen as stepping on the heads of snakes?
2: Well, that's about it. And there's the other faction uh, factor is that the Saudis were defeated by the Houthis in 2009 uh, during a campaign against them when they tried to cross into Yemen, into Saudi Arabia from Yemen, when they were attacking Yemeni forces. There is another factor which may also impact on the Saudis, which is that a large proportion of their troops are of Yemeni origin. Uh, so. They may hesitate to use their own ground forces, and they may be much happier to see Pakistani and Egyptian ground forces go in, uh, which would also distance the Saudis from the uh, ground operations and uh, make it look like an all-Arab campaign rather than just a Saudi campaign.
0: Michael Jansen in Nicosia and Peter Salisbury in New York. Thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. The dissolution of Parliament this week marked the formal start of Britain's general election campaign, which opinion polls suggest will be one of the closest contests in recent memory. Neither David Cameron's Conservatives nor Ed Miliband's Labour Party are currently on course to win an overall majority, and the shape of the next government could be determined by a resurgent Scottish National Party or by Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party – The Conservatives are threatened from the right by the Eurosceptic United Kingdom Independence Party, while Labour is outflanked on the left, not just by the Scottish Nationalists but also by the Greens. The Liberal Democrats are braced for a battering, but they're still hoping to be back in government, either with the Conservatives again or with Labour. To discuss the campaign, I'm joined now from London by our London editor, Mark Hennessy, and here in studio by the Irish Times Foreign Policy editor Patrick Smith. Mark, Labour appear to be a bit more confident at the start of this campaign than many of us expected them to be. Why is that?
3: Well, the TV encounter that happened last week where Ed Miliband and David Cameron were interviewed separately went uh, surprisingly well for uh, Mr. Miliband and they believe that that has rippled out into general public opinion. Now the audience was about a million and a half and it started to taper off long before Mr. Miliband uh, finished uh, his part of the program, but nevertheless uh, one person watches it, but ten people tend to be influenced by whatever opinions the first person person had. So they are more confident b- because of that and also because they believe they can hammer the Conservatives on the austerity agenda, the, the way in which the figures produced by George Osborne before dissolution talk about heavier cuts taking place within the first two years of the next Parliament than anything that has been seen previously. And they hope to capture uh, on uh, and to exploit the austerity fatigue that exists within large parts of British society at the moment.
0: Can we go back to that uh, TV debate or interview, back-to-back interviews, whatever it was last week? Why was it or what was it about Ed Miliband that was better than expected and how did he compare with David Cameron in terms of performance?
3: Well, you have to remember, the the way in which the image of Miliband has been driven home here at the moment uh, bears a resemblance to what happened to John Major. uh, Major was seen as being grey and dull and all of that, whereas uh, Miliband is seen as geekish, he's remote, uh, separated from humanity almost, and the whole Vulcan-Spock arguments that tend to be uh, made pejoratively about him. Whereas in this program, they saw him showing a bit of fire, uh, faced with Jeremy Paxman, who was in his rather sneering mode that uh, Pax, uh, uh, Miliband didn't sit there and just take it he went leant forward and, and attempted to to take him on and you can argue about the merits or demerits of any of that, but it was quite clear in the moments after the encounter was over, the conservative people who were in the spin room next door to the studios were somewhat downcast, and uh, Labour's people had been energised. Now, you can fake the statements that all of these people have to... They always say that their man has won and whatever else. It's the body language that they use uh, when they say all of those kind of things that, do ha- that does have some importance, and there was no doubt that the Labour people... Uh, believed that their man had done better. And you have to remember that in Miliband's case, he's not just at this stage of the campaign, because it's a long campaign, it's May 7th, the first people he has to convince that he can win are his own uh, people in many ways, not just the British public at large, because very large elements of the Labour Parliamentary Party uh, didn't vote for him, have always been dubious about him, and have never regarded him as a winner. That will obviously change during the campaign, if he can get momentum behind him. Now, there, there will be lots of ifs in this conversation, because the same Argument applies for David Cameron, who, where Linton Crosby, his election strategist, who he brought in from Australia, uh, he has been telling the Conservatives for the last eight to nine months, it's coming right. It, the next poll is going to show that everything is 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 coming in the Tory way, and that hasn't happened. And the deadline has been pushed back and back and back and back. they They now believe. It uh, will happen after Easter if that doesn't happen for any reason and if the the Tories do not begin to build up a lead against Labour you you see a danger of indiscipline within the Conservative ranks. So if people tell you that election campaigns don't matter this is one uh, election where the campaign does matter and And, it matters a great deal.
0: And yet uh, Mark uh, if you look at it, uh, David Cameron despite uh, Ed Miliband's good performance the other evening uh, David Cameron still Mm -hmm. comes out Ahead, quite significantly ahead in terms of people's choice as a better prime yes. minister or more prime ministerial, the Conservatives are presiding over an economic recovery. Uh, certainly, uh, unemployment uh, uh, seems to be uh, uh-huh. in a pretty good place, and many other economic indicators. So, why? What's the problem uh, where the Conservatives are concerned? Why hasn't uh, <laughs> Lynton Crosby's prophecy come true yet?
3: Well, part of the problem is the fragmentation of the political market that has taken place with the advent of social media and the way in which uh, life generally is becoming kind of more granular almost. Uh, The difficulty that the Tories have is, as you say, Cameron is streets ahead of uh, Miliband in terms of, of being a better looking uh, prime minister. The difficulty on the economic front, there is no doubt that the figures are correct. This week's figure showed that employment in Britain has never been higher. It's 1.9 million higher than it was when the Tories and Liberal Democrats came into to existence. The difficulty in some ways is that we've never quite seen a recession like the one that happened uh, after 08. whereas you didn't see a massive increase in unemployment. at at least along the lines of the 1980s and the 1930s. What you did see was people either uh, accepting pay cuts or pay freezes or whatever. They they stayed in work at lower rates. So now they are getting a bounce, but it's a smaller bounce than before. It's not a question of somebody being on the dole necessarily and then finding themselves into a well-paid job. They find themselves to be in the same job, but maybe just 1% better off. And that leads to their mood being 1% better off rather than it being uh, qualitatively different from that which went before. And that is certainly something that has caused uh, the Tories' uh, problems. And in some ways, they might have been better off if this election was taking place at the back end of this year, when the economic recovery had another few months to bed down, when there might have been greater signs of uh, wage increases for the the middle ground um, uh, people in in battlefield constituencies, and that that could have an impact. And all of it may yet prove to be the case uh, during the course of the campaign, because Uh, Labour, or uh, David Cameron I should say, has been stressing this line very clearly in the opening chapter of the campaign that everything is at risk if Labour comes into power. Now, clearly, you know, that is the, the rhetoric of campaign. But if it strikes home with the British public, you could see not insignificant changes in polling between now and uh, May the 7th, because at some point the British voter is going to be faced with a near and present danger of political instability after May 7th. Traditionally, it's something that British voters haven't uh, warmed to very much. The question is, on this occasion, will the prospect of that fundamentally alter their decision to about voting within 12 or 18 hours of going into a polling station.
0: And, Paddy Smith, one of the elements of that instability is that this uh, two-party or two-and-a-half-party system that we've been familiar with in Britain for uh, many, many years seems to be falling apart now, and there's a kind of a fragmentation.
4: Yes. I mean, the last uh, election um, forced the Tories uh, to accept uh, coalition for the first time in in. in uh, uh, uh well, for f- the first time ever as far as they were concerned um and uh, indeed, there's a sort of analogy with our own uh, uh, electoral cycle, which uh, Mark touched on in a way when he talked about about how this election is perhaps just slightly too soon for the Tories here. Um, the government uh, parties in Ireland will be watching the way in which the, the public mood changes on, on things like the economy. And we're also getting talk here of the need for, for uh, real increases in pay, for example. Uh, so there are inter- interesting parallels there. But I think the, the, the fragmentation of the political system is is particularly interesting you in the old days uh, the newsnight studio they had this swingometer which was simply two dimensional and it went from one side uh, tories to the other side labor this Labour, is the bbc television program newsnight t- t- television program newsnight uh, um, and explaining electoral the electoral maths uh, a 2% swing would produce the following seats tumbling in one direction or or in the other now we have a multidimensional situation in every constituency. A 2% swing nationally tells you very, very little about (coughs) what's actually going to happen on the ground. And
0: what's the big change? Is it the SNP? Is it UKIP? What is it?
4: It's the rise of of, uh, these other parties. And it's not so much that they're all necessarily going to take lots of seats. UKIP, uh, we don't think, will probably take very many seats at all. But it simply erodes the Tory base, it erodes the Labour base in different constituencies in different ways and makes it possible... For the for the uh, second running candidate. Uh, of of Labour or Tories to 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 take the seat, it's probably the Tories who will be worst affected by by uh, UKIP in Scotland. It's the SNP who are going to take seats up to forty seats, possibly according to the latest polls. So you you, you have a situation in which th- there is no simple way of predicting what's going to happen in, in this election.
0: Is that influencing policy on the part of the big parties? The, uh, the these threats from the right and the left that, that they find themselves under. I think that the the, the reality is that uh, the
4: uh, Tories have been pushed uh, to the right consistently by UKIP, both on on things like immigration and on on Europe. Uh, Labour has been very reluctant to move from the centre ground. It it is desperate to show that it is economically responsible, that it's not a tax and spend party, that it is going to uh, be responsible with with the the deficit and and, and the like. So it hasn't moved uh, so far, it hasn't been pushed away uh, to, to the left. On the other hand, it has actually taken on board some of the UKIP immigration agenda uh, and and indeed in the five-point plan that, that the Labour Party released two days ago. Uh, showing their their, um, their uh, main points for their manifesto, there was a, a clause saying, and we will bring down, down immigration, which is a real heresy in terms of Labour's traditional supporters. Mark,
0: uh, can you take us to Scotland, where uh, what we've seen seems to be uh, quite paradoxical. The Scottish National Party led this uh, a referendum campaign for independence, which they lost, and yet here's the party stronger than it's ever been in the past.
3: Yes, and they had their conference, pre-election conference in Glasgow at the weekend, uh, 3,000 people in the major conference centre uh, in the city, and it was more akin to uh, a, a concert by uh, a major superstar band. I mean, it was, it was evangelical almost in some ways. And these people in the SNP are absolutely convinced that they are on uh, the up and that they are going to destroy Scottish Labour. Uh, Labour itself in Scotland, is almost um, feeling bereft of hope, uh, believing in some ways that it, it begins, it's beginning to, 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 to be a case that it doesn't matter what they say because they can't seem to get an, a, a hearing from the, the Scottish audience. And certainly uh, constituencies in Glasgow that in 2010 were 500 to 1 on for Labour. They barely, I mean, they had to weigh the vote and certainly didn't have to campaign for it. Uh, Seats there are now seriously at risk. And you could see a situation in Glasgow, the only uh, major city uh, to to vote yes in last uh, year's referendum, that the SNP could control a majority of the seats in the city after May 7. Now, what they do subsequently is uh, going to be very interesting. They've said that they won't touch the Tories. They will back a minority Labour government for a price Each uh, and each vote will extract a price. Uh, they've been somewhat disingenuous on their position about Trident because they had a very long debate on Sunday talking about spending money on bairns, uh, i.e. babies, not bombs. And if you were to listen to the rhetoric, you would assume that the SNP position is that if we if they were to support labor in a minority government that the price would be uh, a decision not to replace trident when in fact that is not what they're saying what what they're saying is they they would vote against Trident, but they would continue to support a labor minority government if labor uh, decided to renew Trident with the support of the Conservatives because that leaves them in the best possible position where Labour are seen yet again to be in alliance with the Tories and uh, uh, much hated nuclear force continues to remain in Scotland and it is there to be politically exploited. So they're being very strategic in the way in which they are looking at uh, the situation and Sturgeon has been very clever as well.
0: This is in Nicola Sturgeon Nicola the, Sturgeon,
3: uh, Scottish uh, First Minister, forgive me Uh, has been very clever in the way in which she's pitched messages across the United Kingdom, putting herself in the vanguard of the anti-austerity movement, uh, wanting changes to public spending, uh, to have moderate increases in public spending rather than decreases, and uh, seeking to establish a progressive alliance. And I think you will see at Thursday night's debate in Manchester, uh, seven uh, people debating, including herself, uh, unless she handles it very poorly. She should be the person who comes out of it with uh, the best image because she is the one who is pushing the popular no-cuts message. And in today's climate, it's very hard for a politician who is pushing, pushing that message uh, not to score points.
0: Now, Labour uh, insists that despite the fact that they're getting uh, something of a hammering in Scotland and they recognise that, that actually these predictions of losing 40 of their seats to the SNP, that these are overblown because, mm. in fact, the the margins by which they by, you know, that they're fighting over are relatively small and that a campaign can win these seats or can hold these seats yeah. for them are they right.
3: Well, I think the truth will lie somewhere between the, the middle line. Um, they, I think we're at a point where this election could be transformational in Scotland, i.e. transformational along the lines of what happened to the Irish Parliamentary Party in 1918. And certainly the SNP believe uh, firmly that they're talking about wipeout or near wipeout. Now, their danger is that in terms of expectation management, their own people believe fundamentally believe that this is on, uh, at hand. If they come across with 25 extra seas, which is absolutely um, a, a realistic target for them. There are some in the SNP who will be almost disappointed with that outcome, and they will. Uh, the, the Labour has will be able to defend some heartland seas, but there are times when the tide simply disappears. And uh, what has happened in Scotland is that the 45% uh, who voted yes in last September's uh, election, or in referendum campaign, uh, have pretty much shifted on block towards the SNP. And if you go into uh, first past the post election, uh, like uh, the British system, with 45% of the vote, and you are facing uh, competitors who have to share the rest between them, then the person holding the 45% is going to win. So it depends on uh, the strength of the individual campaign that some uh, Labour MPs will be able to, 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 to put forward but their confidence has been badly, badly
0: shot. And if the Scottish nationalists do as well as all of that, what does that mean for the union?
3: Well, that's striking because... I mean, since September 19, the day morning after the referendum result, uh, the Conservatives have handled this so badly, it, it, it's almost as if they're deliberately trying to lose the union. Cameron went out that morning, and instead of talking about how we are once again one family, he went out and he talked about English votes for English laws. Scots looked at that, and they saw betrayal, in the same way that the Irish have traditionally viewed perfidious Albion. And that has, has just fastened the belief of those who voted yes, and it has created uh, major doubts and more amongst those who voted in favour of maintaining the union, but who now feel that uh, London has backtracked on promises. And everything that's been done since by Cameron and by the Conservatives has exacerbated that. We saw a couple of weeks ago, or 10 days ago, at Prime Minister's questions, when it was uh, argued that the SNP could vote against the Conservative Queen's Speech uh, legislative programme for the year that uh, Cameron was saying that that would be an outrage. And he, he said that, uh, quote-unquote, the British people would not stand for it. And there are times you you listen to this and you wonder whether people can be so lacking in political self-awareness. At the end of the day, an SNP MP's vote is worth the same as anybody else's uh, vote as an MP, and they're entitled to do whatever they want with it. And you have this attitude in England, and it's very much a home county's attitude, that finds it very, very difficult to understand Uh, how uh, the regions uh, of the United Kingdom can influence the center. And we saw that previously in this campaign with the issue of the DUP where they were excluded from uh, the TV debates. The reality of that is there was no deliberate decision made to exclude them. They forgot about them. They forgot about Northern Ireland, and this is what happens again and again and again. London can be tone deaf to the regions, and if that, uh, when that happens, uh, there is a kickback, and we've certainly seen that to be the case in uh, Scotland over the last six months, and we will see it again.
0: Paddy Smith, uh, politicians everywhere always describe every election as the most important election ever, but uh, how important is this election where the future of the British state is concerned, both in terms of its integrity, but also its relationship with Europe
4: I think uh, in, in,
0: in if you look at if the, the European question is particularly interesting
4: because the Tories have backed themselves into a into a corner uh, they're committed to a referendum in 2017 with the current mood in the British population uh, it's quite likely that, that that no matter what they try and get out of negotiations uh, the, the the voters will, will say let's get let's leave the European Union it certainly split the Tory party so from that point of view, uh, this could be a very, very important uh, election. The atomization of the party system the, the, is also uh, it's changing the nature of the British uh, electoral system. But the two big beasts are still the domin- dominating forces of, of British politics, the Tories and, and the Labour Party. And, and in that sense, and the, the ground that they're fighting over electorally in terms of the economy isn't changing that, that uh, significantly. So, I, I, th- I think there is an element of exa- exa- exaggeration.
0: And, Mark, uh, Europe is obviously, you know, Europe and the, the other constitutional questions are the ones that we tend, the, those of us who are outside Britain, tend to be interested in when we look at the election. How important or how big are they as issues in the election campaign?
3: Well, poll after poll has shown that if you ask people in Britain, and particularly by that I mean people in England, what they think about the European Union, they give you very negative answers. If, on the other hand, you ask them to mention the top 10 issues of the day that concern them, they rarely mention the European Union. So there is uh, somewhat of a contradiction in terms. It was quite striking to see uh, Miliband yesterday because in his opening speech about in the campaign, he focused very strongly on Europe and uh, disagreed uh, fundamentally and, and, and vocally again, uh, with David Cameron uh, on his stand in Europe, said that he had uh, reduced uh, Britain's influence in Europe, that he, wouldn't, that he Miliband, would not have a referendum. And there, that is an unpopular view in some ways to take within Britain, but it was therefore all the more striking that he did it. And talking to people within Labour, it wasn't something that was accidental. They had considered it very uh, deeply and had come to the conclusion that at this stage of the campaign, it was necessary for Miliband to be taking positions that might be deemed unpopular by the audience but that they would give him credit for having taken such positions that he was prepared to adopt a position of leadership he has refused demands again and again within his own ranks to match cameron's referendum pledge he believes that if he did that and he won he his first two two two-and-a-half years in government would be utterly and completely destroyed by the referendum, which he would be fighting against a Tory party that would long since have assassinated politically uh, David Cameron, that would have replaced him by a Eurosceptic leader of the opposition, and who would then fight might and main and no holds barred to uh, create uh, an anti-EU platform across Britain. And therefore, that is not, uh, that's why he isn't going to do that. Whether you see the issue becoming um, uh, front and center during the campaign is is yet to uh, yet to become clear. I mean, the fact that people in our world have been fascinated by what's happening in British politics doesn't mean that any of that has been shared by the British public at large. And many millions of people in Britain are only now beginning to wake up to their their, their possible electoral choices. And they will wake up more and more the closer we get to May seven. Uh, UKIP has made progress in Britain, not on the back so much of its EU message, but because it's managed to couple EU membership with immigration. And that has been the key factor in terms of seaside uh, towns like Dover, um, places like Margate, Ramsgate and Kent, all of which are going to be targets for UKIP in the next election. They, they won't win across the border or anything even remotely like that. But there are places there in Essex in, uh, on the Humber where they will be seriously in contention.
0: And that follows the pattern of Eurosceptic parties across Europe in a way which uh, that they tend not to speak so much directly about Europe as about issues like immigration, immigration being the main one. Paddy Smith.
4: Yes, I I think that the significance of Labour's uh, raising Europe at this stage is not to make it a central election issue. It it is uh, to pitch itself as the friend of business. I I think you could see that, that, that alongside... Uh, Ed Miliband's speech was a full-page ad in the Financial Times, which is not exactly mass-market readership, saying Labour is your friend. Labour is not going to cause a, a referendum and threaten threaten business interests. So it's it's part of its niche niche strategy of of, uh,
0: reaching out to the business community. But, Mark, business doesn't believe that Ed Miliband is its friend, does it?
3: No, it doesn't believe him on uh, issues like taxation and other issues. But Paddy is absolutely right. They do believe him on the European Union message. And the question is whether they will see, as the campaign develops, whether there's a real and present danger to EU membership. But you have to remember that there is no such thing as a singular business opinion. Um, the CBI is in favor uh, of, um, uh, the Institute of Directors, I should say, is very strongly in favor of EU membership. There's much more vague opinions within other uh, business organizations. Small business have uh, associations have uh, very contrarian views in that regard. So, and if you look today, for instance, there's an announcement by Honda that they're going to be spending 200 million on their plant in Swindon, and people have already seized on that as evidence that big business will deal with whatever the landscape is, and that people who are arguing uh, that there is an economic Armageddon to be faced uh, outside of the European Union are wrong. And, you know, those arguments are going to be made again and again between now and polling day. But it is not going to be the issue that drives a voter to fundamentally change the position on the ballot paper on which they put their tick. Uh, they, they will uh, perhaps be guided more by their own personal e- economic circumstances, by their position on the NHS, by their position on immigration. They won't be particularly interested in complicated issues about the European Union. Uh,
0: finally, Mark, we're not going to make any predictions today, but if you look uh, right now at the two big parties and you look at them in terms of strategy, organisation, message and leadership. Which of the two parties is right now better placed to fight the campaign?
3: Well, I think uh, structurally, I think you could probably say that the Tories are they're better funded. Um, they have a leader who looks like a leader in the eyes of the majority of the public. However, And this has to be remembered. Uh, Labour have far, far more coalition options than David Cameron does after the votes are counted on May 7, assuming that neither of the two of them have reached the the majority government on their own. And as of now, that's about the one prediction on which we can be absolutely certain.
0: Mark Hennessy in London and Patrick Smith here in Dublin. Thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories on irishtimes.com. And you can contact us at worldview at But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer JJ Vernon, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.